ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello and welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Luskin, and today I'm speaking with Denise O'Leary. She's the editor for MindMattersNews.ai, which is a great resource to learn about topics like artificial intelligence and the mind. And Denise wrote a chapter in the new book, A Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, exploring the ultimate questions about life and the cosmos. And her chapter is titled, Is Evolutionary Psychology a Legitimate Way to Understand Humanity? So Denise, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. You're welcome. Before we get into the questions, I want to make a shameless plug for this new book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring the Ultimate Questions About Life and the Cosmos, which is being published by Harvest House. I'm a co-editor on the book, along with William Dembski and Joseph Holden, and we certainly hope you'll check it out. In addition to a fantastic chapter by Denise O'Leary, it has contributions from leading ID scientists like Stephen Meyer, Michael Behe, Douglas Axe, Jonathan Wells, Guillermo Gonzalez, Walter Bradley, Robert Marks, Brian Miller, and others. And it addresses numerous important topics related to science and faith. But today we're going to talk about evolutionary psychology, which is actually one of my personal favorite topics. And I thought you did a fantastic job addressing this topic in the book, Denise. It was fun because if it's not taken seriously, the topic is hilarious. (laughs) I agree with you 100 percent, Denise. It is hard to take evolutionary psychology seriously sometimes, but there are people who do take it seriously. So we ought to have a serious conversation about it. So can you help us first by just defining what is evolutionary psychology? Well, there are two ways of looking at it. One is there are supposed to be modules in our brains that control the way we do things, that we inherit. Like, why do people look after their children? Why are they jealous? Why do they fight sometimes? And so forth. The evolutionary psychologist will try to find an explanation from what caused humans to survive and reproduce. Now, there's another approach, the one I would take, which is it's a discipline without a subject. Let me explain. A famous scientist, and I confess I can't quite remember just now which one, maybe it was Gaylord Simpson, pointed out that astrobiology, the study of life forms, perhaps intelligent life forms, living on exoplanets, is a discipline without a subject. We can um, speculate all we want. We don't actually have evidence that they exist. Now, I would argue that about evolutionary psychology because here's the problem. Let's say we find a Neanderthal man flash frozen in the permafrost from about 40,000 years ago, and lo and behold, they actually bring him back to life. Okay, so this is wonderful. This is an opportunity to study the mind of an ancient human. So they find some way to contact him. And it turns out he likes football, deer rifles and bear rifles and potato chips. And one day when everybody's stuck indoors because of a snowstorm, he starts to tell you about his religion. Now, I would look at that and say, all right, this is simply a human consciousness. For evolutionary psychology to actually be a study of how human nature evolved to be the way it is, almost the first thing you would need is a pre-human consciousness. Now, it can't just be a chimpanzee consciousness because chimpanzees have hung around for millions of years doing the same things and will probably do the same things for millions more years. So what you actually have to find 
is a pre-human consciousness and a human ancestor. But how are we going to find that? So that would be my first objection to the basic idea of the discipline. It lacks a subject. Now, if we thought out the Neanderthal man and he genuinely had a pre-human consciousness, we'd have something to work with. But everyone says it's not even possible. Well, then I don't know what the discipline is about, but it certainly takes up enough space in popular science magazines. This is a great explanation, Denise. I think that there's a lot of evolutionary fields that lack subjects. I mean, panspermia, do we really know of organisms that are being transported across interstellar space? The list could go on and on here. Well, at least that has the advantage that it's easier to conceive that we might find out that it's true. If we found life forms or fossil life forms on Mars, that would give panspermia a boost. Just how we're going to thaw out the pre-human consciousness of a life form stuck in the permafrost, I would say is much less clear. But nonetheless, that's a good example. So who founded this field of evolutionary psychology, Denise? Was it Darwin? Did he support these kinds of arguments? Or did all this come from his latter-day defenders, people trying to interpret Darwin's ideas in the lens of modern psychology? Where did evolutionary psychology come from? Well, I think the first major work that was taken very seriously in that was Darwin's own book, The Descent of Man. He goes to a great deal of trouble to explain how human behavior evolved to be the way it is. And then other people took up the idea. Now, at first, there was social Darwinism. Social Darwinism basically explained social class and so forth by whether or not people were more or less fit to survive. That didn't survive World War II. Our colleague, Richard Weikart, has written a great deal on the role that social Darwinism played, not only in Nazi Germany, but in, for example, the United States and the Soviet Union in various oppressive practices like forced sterilization and things like that. Well, after World War II, people began to realize this is a serious business. So it fell into disfavor. Then in the 70s, sociobiology came up. Sociobiology was essentially a remake of the Darwinian idea, how social life is created by biological features, Again, it fell prey to accusations of racism. If you think about it, you can see why. The social inequities are supposed to be due to basic reproductive fitness or other survival of the fittest fitness. Well, that doesn't go over well with people who are concerned about social inequities. You're not supposed to tell poor people that they're just unfit to survive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, it just never, it, it, um, anyway. Now, evolutionary psychology is a bit more sophisticated because they don't do that. What they do is they try to explain everything, whether it's religion, altruism, why people shop, why they do or don't cheat on their mates, by harking back to a pre-human past. And of course, it's not about different positions in society. It's, everybody is supposed to do the same thing. So I think they got past that. And one result, of course, is that all kinds of popular science magazines can explain to you um, why little girls are dressed in pink and so forth, little boys in blue, according to evolution. 
And of course, it's largely, if not entirely, nonsense. Now, you mentioned little girls wearing pink in Britain. And this reminds me of an example from Raymond Tallis, who made the point that today evolutionary psychologists will explain the preference of pink for girls and blue for boys because pink is associated with picking fruit, which was the role of women you know, in the Pleistocene a million years ago. And blue was the color of the water, which was the role of men, which was fishing. So men preferred blue and women preferred pink. And then Talos points out that, well, this idea that men prefer blue and women prefer pink is a modern uh, idea. And if you were to go back to Victorian Britain, it was the opposite, that yeah. pink was associated with men and blue was associated with women. And this yeah. whole explanation is total nonsense. So obviously that maybe is a failed attempt of evolutionary psychology to explain our behavior, but what are some other aspects of human behavior that evolutionary psych purports to explain? Well, I could read some of it if you want. Sure. I just have to find some of it. Um, we may not know why we do things, but no matter, the evolutionary psychologist does. Evolution explains, for example, why we shop. Gatherers sifted the useful things from things that offered them no sustenance, and that eventually led to shopping malls and credit cards, or gossip. Back in the day, if you didn't care to find out what was going on, you were more likely to die and less likely to pass on your incurious genes. Oh yes, and anger over trivial matters was once key to our survival. Well, now some of us would look at that and say, anger over trivial matters is a good way to get killed, <laughs> especially in a rather difficult situation. But I don't, I, I mean, those are just examples. And the thing I would keep coming back to is, where is the pre-human life form that did this for those reasons when the average human life form gossips because we like to gossip? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not a survival issue. If it was ever a survival issue, it must have been before there was a human mind. Otherwise, what are we trying to explain? It's a very good point, Denise. One of the topics that you get into in your chapter is altruism. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting that evolutionary psychologists try to spend so much time talking about the origin of altruism. It's almost like it bothers them. So what is altruism and, and why do evolutionary psychologists talk about it so much? And do you think that it poses a challenge to evolutionary psychology? Well, first, altruism is a kind of a made-up word. You start with something like compassion for people who can never really do anything for it, like the um, religious figure who spends a lot of time looking after the people with disabilities, maybe doesn't even get married or have children because he or she is so busy doing that. Okay, then you have the, the hero who dies for his or her country without ever having any children. How do you account for this in a Darwinian scheme where everybody's supposed to be trying to spread their selfish genes? Well, the first thing you do is you invent a term called altruism. And altruism explains, for example, why worker ants or bees don't reproduce. They only help the queen reproduce. So that's altruism. Now, so the evolutionary psychologist would say the human being who looks after the people with disabilities or sacrifices life for country is doing the same thing. Now, I don't think they are doing the same. For one thing, you have the human mind interposing. The people who choose to have the ministry or the heroic act are making a choice. 
The worker ant is not making a choice. In fact, she isn't even born with the capacity to reproduce. For the evolutionary psychologist who needs to find a way to accommodate the human tendency to do something other than spread our selfish genes, it'll do. And so you find all these explanations for why people do these things. Like we'll be told, well, the religious figure who looks after the disabled people, his relatives had children. So, so that's how he, that person did it. Well, wait a minute. Has anybody done a longitudinal demographic study about whether these people's relatives are more likely to have children? Maybe not. It's like um, the families I know where that happened, it often happened that the saintly person dragged brothers and sisters into it and they didn't have children either. But it was never evident that anybody cared. You see, back of this is the evolutionary psychologist's belief that people don't make rational choices. It's important to realize they feel that our behavior is governed by forces we don't understand that are beyond our control and our natural selection, if you like, driving us to attempt to spread our selfish genes. If somehow that gets off track, the off-trackness needs to be explained in terms of the theory. And yes, sometimes it does feel like emptying Darwin's wastebasket. When you hear these explanations, I think Darwin wisely avoided most of that. Many of his followers have not. Denise, it's almost as if in trying to explain the origin of the mind, evolutionary psychologists begin to deny that the mind exists and that the mind is doing anything. Well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> many have explicitly made that point. Daniel Dennett, the Darwinian philosopher, explicitly makes that point, and Richard Dawkins goes along with them. Now, that theory isn't catching on. In fact, one of the biggest new developments in science, which would be worth a podcast to itself, is the gradual growth of panpsychism, the replacement of straightforward materialism, especially in science of mind, with panpsychism, the belief that everything participates to a slight extent in consciousness. But human consciousness is the best development we have to date. Before you say that's crazy, consider it's not as crazy as telling people your mind doesn't exist <laughs> and my mind doesn't exist. As, as Mike Agnar, the neurosurgeon, likes to say, if your hypothesis is that your mind doesn't exist, you do not have a hypothesis. <laughs> so, so, like, there are crazier things than panpsychism. And evolutionary psychology, as it happens, participates in one of those crazier things. I mean, let's face it, it is a discipline without a subject. Mm. Well, I like the example that you gave in your book about nesting. And you said that, you know, this is, you said, you write, the role of abstract thought, including reason and moral concerns, is set aside. Human behavior is explained as if humans were non-rational animals. On that view, we may imagine that we do things for rational or moral reasons, but the true driving forces are those hypothesized modules that drive us to survive and reproduce. And I think nesting is a good example of this. It's like the woman who is preparing the house for the baby isn't even thinking, making any rational thought about, okay, I have a baby coming. I ought to get ready for that. It's just some instinct that she's being driven by that she can't control and there's no rationality going on. And that is not the way our minds work. That's not an explanation of the human experience. So this just does not seem like a good way of, of approaching the human mind. Well, no, it isn't. Now, it is true 
that many life forms form nests when they're about to reproduce. But the woman who's running around buying dishwashing liquid and laundry soap and road salt, because she reckons that it will be very inconvenient to be shopping for this sort of thing while carrying a six-week-old infant, um, is not, in that sense, nesting. She's doing something that's very explicitly human, which is forecasting probable events. The, the mm. cat who makes herself a burrow in the barn loft in order to have her kittens is not forecasting human events in the same way. She has very little idea what's going to happen in the next six months. But mm. with the human being, it's all about forecasting. And yes, yeah, so so it's a kind of a silly thing. Mm. That I agree with you very much on that. So we were talking about altruism and you talked about you know the religious ascetic who helps maybe his family's children survive, uh, passing on his genes, and that's a form of altruism. Evolutionary psychology is also very obsessed with explaining the origin of religion. Mm -hmm. And this is always suspicious to me because evolutionary psychologists seem to spend a disproportional amount of time trying to explain the origin of religion, and they don't spend much time trying to explain the evolutionary origin of atheism. So uh, why do you think that evolutionary psychologists seem so bothered by religion and spend so much time talking about its origin? And do you think that evolutionary psychology does a good job of explaining the origin of religion? Well, first, the purpose of all evolutionary psychology is to Darwinize things, to explain things in terms of Darwinian evolution, natural selection acting on random mutation, life forms attempting to reproduce their selfish genes. So it's not so much whether it's a good job of explaining religion as do they make it fit into a Darwinian framework? Because almost nobody who is religious would find much of an explanation in a Darwinian framework. Um, the three basic approaches are religion is useful. Religion is a useless byproduct, a spandrel, as Stephen Jay Gould would put it, or religion is positively useless. All three are represented in the literature. Now, the useful part I think, has to do with the idea that religious communities may be more stable and therefore reproduce their selfish genes more. I don't know. I think the jury's out on that. I mean, if you're looking at it honestly, certainly you can find such religious communities, but you can also find religious communities that are racked by terrorism, that produce terrorists, that get the community into wars where thousands of people are killed. To say nothing of on a more peaceful basis, the largest branch of the Christian religion enforces celibacy on all of its leaders, the Catholic Church. See, if I were trying to invent a religion out of whole cloth, I wouldn't do that if I was interested in spreading selfish genes. Now, somebody can argue, well, yes, but the priest urges other people to have children. Okay, but how does that spread his selfish genes? It doesn't. It may spread the selfish genes of people who will conspire against him and get him defrocked. It doesn't make sense if you're looking at it in relation to what really happens among human beings. And then remembering that evolutionary psychology is only viable if you can find that pre-human whose behavior might in fact have been instinctive. We then have to figure out what kind of a religion, if any, would that pre-human have? What kind of religion do chimpanzees have? It seems to me that the most significant thing about religion is that it, it's entirely a product of abstraction. 
I, I don't mean that it's only in the human mind. I mean that when Moses took off his shoes on holy ground, because he was seeing God, remember in the book of Exodus, right? Everything that was happening was abstract. If Moses had been an animal bumbling around up there, nothing would have happened. There were animals bumbling around up there. In fact, I think he was looking for lost sheep. The revelation wasn't sent to them. What, what I'm getting at is you can't even begin to understand religion unless you start with the human intellect. There is no religion apart from it. Whether religion is true, false, helpful, wicked, ambivalent, useless, it's all a purely intellectual exercise. And it's not clear to me what evolutionary psychology, to whatever extent it could be a science, can contribute. Very well said, Denise. So obviously you are very critical of evolutionary psychology, and I would agree with many of your criticisms, but is it only us outsiders to the field of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology that are critical of evolutionary psych? Are there some critics from within mainstream science of evolutionary thinking who are critical of evolutionary psychology? Well, most hard scientists simply avoid the topic. It, it, at its best, it's kind of soft, if you think about it. Now, a fair amount of criticism has come from non-religious philosophers. The two I think are the most useful in this context would be David Stove and Jerry Fodor, uh, both now deceased. But I would recommend Darwinian fairy tales from David Stove, who is an agnostic. And if you're more into hard philosophy... What Darwin Got Wrong by Jerry Fodor. Stephen and Hilary Rose put together quite a critical anthology. Stephen Jay Gould contributed to it called Alas, Poor Darwin. And that's been reprinted. Now, Hank Campbell, a science writer, has a very interesting comment. What he says is scientists tend to give it a pass, even though they find it silly, because they use the word evolutionary in the title, and they don't want to criticize something that would seem like they were criticizing evolution. But I think a useful question for some of them to ask is, what about this is evolution? Where's the pre-human subject? As opposed to evident attempts to find Darwinian explanations for a great many phenomena for which other explanations are just as useful, or in fact, more so. Mm. Very well said, Denise. Well, we really appreciate you deconstructing and demystifying evolutionary psychology for us in your chapter in the book. Again, the chapter is titled, Is Evolutionary Psychology a Legitimate Way to Understand Our Humanity? And the book is titled, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring the Ultimate Questions About Life and the Cosmos. I hope you will check it out. And thank you so much, Denise, for your wonderful contribution to this book. You're most welcome. Glad to be here. I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Thanks for listening. Did you know that ID the Future reaches tens of thousands of listeners every month with the evidence of intelligent design? We need your financial support to keep ID the Future going and growing our listener base. If you value this content, please consider a gift right now. Go to idthefuture.com and click on the big donate button near the top right. That's idthefuture.com. Your donation is an investment in science, culture, and truth. That's idthefuture.com. Thanks so much for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org.
This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.